from a, a big picture perspective, we're in a season where we're studying the kingdom of God from the Gospel of Luke. We've made our way to chapter 6 now, and we're asking the question, what is the kingdom of God like? And we're finding out week by week a little bit more about what the kingdom of God is like. So that's big picture. Um, If we narrow the focus and just say, okay, what's the snapshot of what we're doing at this particular moment in time for these few weeks? Well, right now for two Sundays, we are in a window where we're watching Jesus respond to opposition. And we can learn from those opportunities as well a little bit more about what the kingdom of God is like. So we're in Luke 6, just beginning, we're at verse 1. Last Sunday we saw Jesus responding to opposition related to the fact that he and his disciples were not keeping uh, the traditional fasts and times of prayer accompanying those fasts. They were questioned about that. He had a particular response. Today... He's going to be questioned and opposed for something else. And um, this is going to feel more confrontational than last week, okay? Um, last week was, um, was fun. We got to talk about joy. Last week was happy. This week is not going to be quite so happy, not quite so fun. But it's going to be very good because it is good to be confronted by the word of God. And so we're going to take each of these things, the fun and the not-so-fun, as they come. We're going to take verses 1 through 11. It's going to be two separate um, incidents or two separate occasions, but they hold together as one theme describing the same thing. Okay, so verses 1 through 11, Luke 6. Let's read the word first. Would you um, stand if you're able? If you're able to stand this morning in honor of God and his word, let's stand for the reading of the word. This is what we find. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, looking around at them all, he said 
um, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I do want to offer a prayer before we begin, and as part of that prayer, um, I want to let you know that um, a specific request that we took to the Lord last, um, last weekend as a congregation um, has had a, an unbelievable and overwhelming answer, okay? So our sister church in Romania, their worship pastor, whose name is Yanuts, had a liver transplant. And last weekend, it looked really bad. His body was rejecting the liver. And he was in critical condition. You, I hope you got the email. We were praying for him. He's got two young kids. Um, he's a, a pretty young man himself. Taken off the streets into the family of God. Brought in, loved. Now with a, a liver transplant and his body rejecting the liver. And we went to prayer. He was in critical condition. And this morning, we just got the report back this morning that he is doing well. He is doing well. He's out of intensive care. And um, let's not forget um, the mercy of God to his family. And that for every, every tragedy that we see in this life where we say, you know, God, this is so sad. We're so sad to see this happen that there are these other occasions where God responds in his mercy and preserves life where it looks like life will be lost. And so we just say, thank you, Lord, and we do that together. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just want to come, come back like that a Samaritan that came back after being healed and just bowed down uh, to give glory to God. We just put ourselves in that posture this morning. On behalf of Yanutes and his family in his praying church, and say thank you. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for healing. We pray that you would continue uh, to restore, restore health, give his body strength, help his family as they pray and recover and do life in this interim period while they're praying and hoping and and watching him get better. Uh, We say thank you. And we say, God, please keep helping him. Your wisdom and your, your mercy are perfect. So we offer that thanks to you. We pray for for this time that you would use it to benefit um, our souls and change us. We don't hide our need for change. And uh, we ask in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. How do you get to the point where seeing someone healed makes you furious. Seriously, how do you get to that point? Even people who don't know God and don't want to know God will and can rejoice and be happy and be thankful to something or someone when they see someone with a disability not have that disability anymore. You can be a pagan 
or an atheist and be happy and joyful when you see someone get healed. But how do you get to the point where seeing someone healed makes you furious? This is a really ugly picture. This is really rotten religion that we're looking at here in Luke 6. And the hardest part is that the people who are displaying this ugliness are the people who supposedly know God the best. They are the experts in God and claim to represent God to everyone else. And that has to bring us all up short because we sit in the same seat currently. We are the ones gathered in this room that say, hey, we're the ones that read the Bible. We're the ones that pray. We're the ones who come out to church on Sunday. We're the ones who are doing all the right things. We're the ones that talk about faith and how important it is in our lives. We claim to represent God to everyone else. We claim to have all the answers about God. We're trying to live holy lives. We are in their position present day. So we have to know. How do you get to the point where seeing someone healed makes you furious? We have to be able to answer that question so that we don't end up looking like them. We can't look like them. When people look at us, we want them to see Jesus, not putrid religion. We read in verse 11 that when they saw this man healed, They were filled with fury. We don't want that to happen to us. We want the opposite thing to happen. We want to look like Jesus. When people look at us, we want them to see Jesus. But I have to tell you that it does not happen automatically. Just because you profess relationship with God... It's not automatic that people will see Jesus when they look at you. That only happens whenever we are refined and rounded off and changed through the study and application of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit empowered study and application of the word. We have to have the formative influence of the word of God. And that's why we're here today. So that we don't end up looking like these guys in Luke 6. And this passage will help us, okay? We will get there. There is help here. First, we have to understand what in the world is going on. We have to understand what the Pharisees' problem was with Jesus. Here here it is in summary form. It's not difficult to figure out. There are two separate incidents, but they teach the same basic problem. The Pharisees' problem is that Jesus was violating their Sabbath standards. That's the problem. Jesus was violating their Sabbath standards. According to their Sabbath standards, he was doing work on the Sabbath, and that was, that was wrong. <clears throat> Notice I said their Sabbath standards, okay? Yes, God had given the law to Israel, Exodus 20, don't do any work on the Sabbath. That's from God. Don't work on the Sabbath, okay? 
Valid command, good command. God told Israel, don't do any work on the Sabbath. Exodus 20, it's there. But then what had happened was the Pharisees had taken that command and they had spelled out very specifically 39 ways, 39 rules to make sure that no work was being done on the Sabbath. Okay, so they elucidated the command. They interpreted the command and said, this is what it means. This is what counts as work. This is what doesn't count as work. And they contained this teaching in a, a, a body of material called the Mishnah, which was a companion to the Torah or the law. And the Mishnah was a companion to explain the oral interpretation. This is what the law means. Okay, the Mishnah was completed 3rd century A.D. They made sure that these right practices were held to by all the people. These things were in common practice when Jesus came on the scene and then what we have early in Luke 6 here is Jesus violating these standards. He violates the standards in two ways. The first way we find in verses 1 through 5, the matter of the grain. And secondly, in the matter of the healing. That's verses 6 through 11. In both cases, they accused him of doing work on the Sabbath. So let's take a minute to understand the exact violation that was being perpetrated, okay? In the case of the grain field, in their concern about working on the Sabbath, notice the verbs in that section where we read that the disciples plucked, plucked, and ate the grain, rubbing it between their fingers, okay? One of their Sabbath regulations is that there should be no reaping or threshing or winnowing of grain on the Sabbath, no reaping, No threshing, no winnowing. And when they saw the disciples doing that, plucking the heads, well, that was a reaping. Rubbing it between their fingers in order to eat it, that was a threshing, and that was a winnowing. You're working on the Sabbath, okay? That's how they interpreted those events. They were in in violation. And in the matter of the healing, here's what we have to understand, okay? The the whole, the whole eating thing, the grain, is, is very bizarre, but we get it. They counted this, these little actions as reaping and threshing. In the matter of the healing, their Sabbath regulations, their oral tradition was, was very specific. And here's what it said about this whole matter of medical care. Life-saving medical care could be done on the Sabbath. If someone needed attention and medical care on the Sabbath, they were in a life-threatening situation, that was okay. But if their needs were not life-threatening, it could wait. That kind of care could wait until after the Sabbath so that the person who's rendering the medical care would not be working on the Sabbath. And so that's the standard that Jesus is up against here in the synagogue in the incident of the man with the withered hand. This man doesn't require life-saving care. In fact, 
what we see from Jesus here, I, I love this. I'm not going to hide the fact that I love it. Is he, es- he escalates, he escalates the situation, okay? A lot of times, not a good idea. De-escalation is the word that we like to use. He escalates the situation. And do you notice how? He highlights the fact that this man does not need life-saving care. How does he do it? He says to the man, come and stand here. You don't tell people who need life-saving care, why don't you get up and stand here for a minute? They can't do that. And we read that the man, he, he rose. He got up and he stood there in front of everybody. And you can't do that. We'd never ask anyone to do that if their life is in danger. So he escalates the situation. He demonstrates for sure that this is going to be a confrontation because this guy does not need life-saving aid on the Sabbath. So he puts himself squarely in the crosshairs. There are the two cases that illustrate the one point. The problem that they had with Jesus is that he's violating their Sabbath standards. Okay, Now, therefore what? So, so what? So, since he's violating their Sabbath standards, therefore he is not a good man. Therefore he is not a righteous man. Therefore he represents a threat to us and our people. Because he's teaching the people to do what's not lawful. What's going to happen next? What kind of anarchy are we headed toward if he goes on doing this? Even if we don't agree with the Pharisees' priorities, we can appreciate their concern. The level of threat that they see in him. So that's their problem. Now, let's talk about the three things that Jesus demonstrates to them, okay? So this is his response. This is, the next three things are all under the category of how he responds to their problem. He responds to their problem with him in three ways. He demonstrates these three things, okay? Here's the first one. This is verses three and four. He demonstrates to them the true nature of the Sabbath, That's something that they don't understand. He demonstrates to them the true nature of the Sabbath. Let me ask you a question. We've got many, many great Bible students in the room. What's the purpose of the Sabbath? Why did God give the Sabbath to mankind? Sabbath is a day for rest. That's Deuteronomy 5. The Sabbath is given to mankind for rest, restoration, refreshment. Because taking a break is good for us. In this, in this world and in this life of work and labor, rest is good. God has called it good. For us to pull back and rest and be refreshed and be restored. It's good for our mind and for our body. And you know that. You've experienced that. But, but do you know what that means? If, if, if that's the purpose for the Sabbath so that we can rest and be refreshed and be restored, that means that there will be times 
when a particular uh, rule or standard that's designed to protect our rests is going to need to be violated in order to achieve the desired goal of rest. So sometimes there's a, there's a rule that has been set up or that we set up to protect our rest, but that same rule or regulation must be violated in order to achieve the real purpose of the Sabbath, which is rest and restoration. And if we want to know what that looks like, we have examples right here in this text, two of them. What does it look like to violate a standard in order to achieve the larger goal? Two examples are given to us in verses 1 through 5. Here's the first one. Jesus and his disciples are on a road trip. There is no Jimmy John's. There is no Chick-fil-A. What are they going to do? How are they going to be refreshed? How are their bodies going to be restored as they're traveling? They're on foot. It's the Sabbath. It's the day for restoration and refreshment. And if you find yourself away from home on that day, it means you might have to pluck some heads of grain for food. Maybe rub it between your fingers to make it easier to eat. See, that's an example where violating the standard actually helps them achieve the greater purpose of the Sabbath, to be restored and refreshed. you got to eat. The alternative is to go hungry on the Sabbath. And how does that achieve the desired end? And so when Jesus is questioned about the appropriateness of this violation, he points out the second example. He points out that, hey, when David and his men were traveling through the countryside, they did the same thing. They did something technically unlawful. They ate the bread of the presence that was only for the priests to eat by direct command of God. They did something technically unlawful, and that was actually right and good because of the necessity that they were in. Because they were in a unique situation where all of the parties knew, the priests, David and his men, that what was happening was permissible and good and right and necessary, even though not technically lawful, but it fulfilled the true nature of the Sabbath. Here's what we have to nail down in our minds. We have to understand what we're talking about when we read this word, lawful. The law is an expression of the character of God. That's what the law is. It's an expression of God's character. Do not lie. Do not steal. Be faithful to your spouse. The law is an expression of God's character. It's what God looks like. God who cannot lie. God who is faithful. God who is good. God who is love. The law is simply an expression of that character. So look... If the law is an expression of God's character, then the thing that is truly lawful 
is the thing that best reflects the revealed character of God. Think about what it means for something to be truly lawful. If the law is an expression of who God is and an expression of his character, then the thing that is truly lawful is that which best reflects the revealed character of God. And that's the big sticking point here in Luke 6. The Pharisees think that Jesus and his disciples are being unlawful. Doing things that are not lawful. They're violating the written code. Why are you doing what is not lawful? And Jesus is working on a whole different level with a fuller understanding of the idea of lawful. To be lawful and to be acting in a way that is lawful is to do the thing that best reflects the character of God. Okay? I'll give you a practical everyday example that I think will be helpful as we try to get our minds around this and put it into practice. Okay? Think about this situation. I leave home at noon on a Saturday and I say to my son as I'm, as I'm leaving, please mow the lawn while I'm gone. I'll be back at three. I give him a, a direct command, okay? I leave at noon. I give him that command. I come back at three. The lawn is not mowed. I find my son. I say to my son, I gave you something to do. I gave you a command to get this done. Why is it not done? My son looks at me and he says, Dad, after you left, I went out to get the the mower. And when I went out to get the mower from the shed, Mary from next door came over in a big hurry and said, a bookshelf has fallen in our home and Carl is underneath it and I can't get him out. It's too heavy. My husband is under a bookshelf, a huge bookshelf. I can't get him out. Can you come help? And my son says, when she came, I I said, sure. And I went and I lifted the bookshelf off of Carl and he was bleeding and needed to go to the hospital. So I drove them to the hospital. I made sure they were taken care of. Mary was hungry. I went and got her lunch. She's fine. And I just got back. Has my son violated what I clearly told him to do? Yes, he has. Am I pleased that he clearly violated what I told him to do? Yes, I am. Think about how horrified, how horrified I would be if I came home and my son told me what happened and the yard is mowed and he told me what it had cost our neighbor because he chose to mow the lawn instead of helping them. I can't help you because my dad told me to mow the lawn and I cannot disobey what he said. How mortifying would that be as a parent? But how satisfying that in that moment, your child 
knows the character of the father and what his father would want. He knows the father well enough to know, I must do this because this is a better reflection of who my father is than to do what he told me to do before he left. See, my son would have done what was truly lawful. He made the decision that best reflected the character of his father. He was technically in violation, but he was right in line with what his father would want. By the way, we really did have neighbors named Mary and Carl. As far as I know, a bookshelf never fell on Carl. The whole story was made up just to make a point. What's the point? Jesus understands the true nature of the Sabbath. He understands. He knows his father. He knows what his father wants. He knows what pleases him. He's not afraid to do the truly lawful thing, even if it's in violation of accepted practice. Just like any of our kids would know what would truly please us in that kind of a situation with a neighbor. All right? We're thinking about the three things that Jesus demonstrates. This is his response to their objections. Okay, first, he demonstrates the true nature of the Sabbath. He, he understands that it's for refreshment. Okay, he knows. He's reflecting the Father perfectly. Second thing he demonstrates is that he has the authority to judge Sabbath practices. Okay, this is not going to take long, but this is the second thing he demonstrates. This is verse 5. He demonstrates to them, rather, he asserts the authority to be the judge of what is okay and what is not okay on the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Because we could imagine these guys, when they hear this explanation, and he brings up David. Okay, really? You're going to bring up David and say that what you're doing is okay because David did it? Well, who are you? I mean, that was David. He gets like a special exemption. He was the king, okay? Yeah, he can do that, but who, who are you to use him as an excuse for what you're doing? And Jesus one-ups them. He takes them up even higher. The son of man. He's referring to himself. The Daniel 7 son of man. The eternal one who is to be given a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. That's me. I'm greater than David, he's saying. He's saying, I'm greater than David and I'm greater than you. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I decide what's okay and what's not okay. You guys think you're the rulers in this business and that you get to tell people and you get to be judge and jury over this thing? I am Lord of the Sabbath. He just flat out asserts it. Of course he is. He is God in the flesh. He's the law giver. He is God. And so he's making his response to their opposition. He's demonstrating these things. The true nature of the Sabbath. He has the authority to judge appropriate Sabbath practices. And finally, this is the major blow to their pride. This is the real knife to the heart. He demonstrates in verses 9 through 11 that they are the actual Sabbath breakers. 
They're accusing him of violating the Sabbath, and he demonstrates to them very subtly, but very powerfully, that they are the actual Sabbath breakers. Let's look at how he does it. He asks them a question in verse 9. We see in verse 8 that he knows their thoughts. He knows they're looking for a reason to accuse him. He knows that they're on the lookout to try to destroy him. In fact, Mark, in his account, in Mark's gospel, he adds this comment. Same account, Luke doesn't give this comment, but Mark does in his account of that same incident. He writes that after this happened, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Destruction was on their mind. And so Jesus, standing there in that synagogue with this disabled man next to him, knows their thoughts and knows that those thoughts are set on destroying him. Now, what's on Jesus' mind? What is his plan for the Sabbath? I know you have a plan for Today, you've got a plan for Sunday. What was on Jesus' mind on that Sabbath? What did he want to do? What was his plan? His plan was to restore a man to good health. He's going to heal a man's hand. He wants to see this man made well. That's his plan. What's on their mind? There's this other group of people spending their Sabbath plotting how they can bring destruction to a man who is well. So one party is desiring to make a diseased man well and another party is desiring to make a well man destroyed. Now, here's the question. Which of those parties best represents the priorities of the Sabbath? That is the question that Jesus hits them with right between the eyes in verse 9. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to destroy it? Obviously, the answer is doing good, saving life. The not permissible thing, the never permissible thing, is to do harm to life, to destroy it. So who on this day is seeking to do good? And who on this day is seeking to do harm and destroy someone? And therefore is in violation of the Sabbath. What a, what a penetrating question. What a, what a knife right to the heart. I ask you, what is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? They are the Sabbath breakers. Their little Sabbath project is to go out and discuss with each other afterward, how are we going to destroy this person? Jesus healed a man's hand. That's what he did to a man. And they're talking about what they might do to Jesus in the way of harm, in the way of destruction. So he completely flips the tables on them. 
He knows the true nature of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, not them. He is keeping the Sabbath, and they are not. They are the ones in violation. Wow, and now we need to, we're going to put a bow on this, okay? It's going to be a, a pretty quick bow, but it might be the most important bow that we'll ever put on anything, okay? It's going to go back to the question we started with, the crucial question. How do we keep from becoming like them? What can we do to make sure that we're aligning more and more with Jesus and less and less with the Pharisees, with that broken and ugly religion? And we'll we'll try to make this as simple as possible, okay? We have to ask ourselves a different question than the Pharisees were asking. They were asking the question, what question were they asking all the way through? They were asking, is this lawful according to our code? No interest in the law as a window into God's character. Just use the law to keep score with each other. That is what the law was for them. It was a way to keep score between them and other religious people. Who's doing better at keeping this thing? It was not for them a window into God's character. It was simply used to keep score. And that's how religion turns ugly and rotten. When the law is used to keep score instead of being seen as a revelation of the character of God. Okay, So here's the better question. Here's the question that has to become integral to our lives. And I would love if you would put this in your pocket and take this with you and and put it up somewhere where you will see it often. Here's the question that we have to get used to asking when we're making decisions about what we're going to do, how we're going to treat people. The critical question is this. What action best reflects the revealed character of God? What action best reflects the revealed character of God? Every Christian wants to use the Bible to support their actions. Every Christian wants to find a verse to support their viewpoint. Every Christian is interested in being lawful and obeying. But very few Christians throughout history and few Christians now have been trained to take God's word in their hands with a decision that has to be made and read what the Bible has to say about it and stop and ask the question, what action can I take that will best reflect the revealed character of God? Because I know that that's the truly lawful thing to do. If we had been trained to ask that question, the Crusades would not have happened. And if Christians had been trained to ask that question, the Spanish Inquisition would not have happened. And almost all of the church abuses and all of the cover-ups and all of the hypocrisy and all of the lamentable attitudes and posturing and attacking and name-calling and the ugly things that we see a great majority of them, those terrible things so harmful to our witness, 
could have been avoided if Christians had been trained to stop and read Luke 6 and ask the question, what action can we take or will I take that will best reflect the revealed character of God? If we simply understood what we see from Jesus here in Luke 6, that he's working on a completely different level from everyone else, asking a completely different question, what can I do here that will best reflect the revealed character of God? And in one case, the answer is, we're going to eat. We're hungry. And we need to be refreshed. And so we're going to eat. And and in the other case, in the synagogue, this guy's going to be healed today because it's the Sabbath. And guess what the Sabbath is for? It's for restoration and rest and recovery. And that best reflects God's character. It's going to happen of all days. It's going to happen today. This guy's going to be healed today. That's what the Sabbath is for. And you have to take this question with you because, Christian, you are being inundated with a million different situations that we, frankly, are very ill-prepared for. And you have to take this question with you. Because you're going to face so many challenging situations. And young people here, one day you're going to be sitting in a room, probably 20, 25 years from now, and you're going to be asking a question that we asked ourselves a couple years ago. Hey, are we going to meet or are we not going to meet? Are we going to get together this week or are we not going to get together? Well, Hebrews 10 says, don't stop meeting together. On the other hand, Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor. Well, if we meet together, it might not be loving our neighbor because the bubonic plague is going around. And if I get close to this person, I might give it to him. So if we meet, I might not be loving. And you can find scripture to support both viewpoints. So what are you going to do? Because you can make an argument either way. I'm not answering that question this morning. All we're doing is learning the right question to ask. We're just learning the right question to ask. Because at some point, 15, 20, 25 years from now, when you are in that discussion or one like it, someone has to stand up in the room and say, what action can we take that will best reflect the revealed character of God. That is what is truly lawful. We're all interested in being lawful and doing the right thing. And we have to get to the point where we ask that question. Whether it's do we meet or do we not meet? Do I bake this cake for the person, this event that they want a cake for? I'm not sure if I support that event. Well, do I bake it or do I not bake it? Do I go to this wedding I'm invited to or do I not go to this wedding that I'm invited to? Do I show grace in this situation or do I follow through with serious consequences? Things are very hard to parse out sometimes. And you can find scripture to support either viewpoint. We're just learning a better question to ask. The priority that we see from Jesus in Luke 6. There are a thousand other situations We can't talk about today. Let me just tell you, we may disagree on the right answers to those questions. Christians may disagree on what is right in a lot of these situations. But we have to get to the point of asking the right question. Because even though your answer to that question might not change, your attitude and your tone 
will very likely change as you carry out that decision because you have spent time reflecting on the revealed character of God. And there's a much better chance that we'll look like Jesus as we carry out whatever that decision is because that was his mission, to come and reflect perfectly the revealed character of God. And what he did perfectly, yeah, we do imperfectly. That we get the idea. Let's ask the right question, okay? Because what can't happen is for us to end up looking like these people in Luke 6, these people who simply did not understand that the lawful thing is that which best reflects the character of God. Thanks for your patience. Important subject. And I need to plan it in my heart too, okay? Let's pray. Father, um, at all costs, don't let us become like the picture of what we see from established religion here in Luke 6. Take us off the planet first before this happens. But better than that, instead of having to remove us because our attitudes and hearts are so ugly, we pray you'd change us and that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and have our hearts simply set on doing the best we can to reflect the revealed character of your glorious person. That's why we're here. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.